0: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up this week?
1: Same news, different week, Leslie. Same news, different week.
0: Yes, but Kamala?
1: That is absolutely true. There is at least some variation that has varied my TV viewing a little bit. So instead, I had to write about that because naturally, I'm... A political TV critic, too. Yay!
0: A jack of all trades, my friend. You you truly do it all.
1: Good times. But fortunately, there's also a fair amount of actual TV news to discuss in this week's podcast.
0: Leading off in headlines, in development news, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is returning to TV with a new take based on the viral trailer that reimagined the Will Smith comedy as a drama. Smith and the team behind the original series are all attached as exec producers. The show will be shopped and is expected to generate a bidding war. Elsewhere, Seth MacFarlane has set his first show under his $200 million NBCU overall deal, The Winds of War limited series.
1: It's also been a busy week at Peacock. The newly launched streamer has added a late night series hosted by Larry Wilmore and handed out series orders to *McGruber* and picked up YA drama One of Us is Lying and tapped former TV's top five podcast guest Sarah Bareilles to star in Tina Fey's comedy Girls Five Eva. And that's to say nothing of the uh, the Amber Ruffin late night show that they are also very, very high on.
0: Yes, both will both the Amber Ruffin show and the Larry Wilmore show will launch in September.
1: I'm looking forward to them.
0: Elsewhere, TikTok Trump impersonator Sarah Cooper has landed a comedy special at Netflix that will be directed by Natasha Leon and exec produced
1: by Maya Rudolph. She also guest hosted Jimmy Kimmel this week, and it was downright strange to hear her actual voice. So. Good for Sarah Cooper. Uh, Apple has signed Martin Scorsese to a first look film and TV deal. And the tech giant is also reviving Harriet the Spy as an animated kid series featuring a voiced cast that includes Beanie Feldstein, Jane Lynch and Lacey Chabert.
0: Over at Hulu, the great star Elle Fanning will top line a limited series called The Girl from Plainville. The streamer has also tapped Selena Gomez to star opposite Steve Martin and Martin Short in comedy series Only Murders in the Building from exec producer Dan Fogelman of This Is Us. And Love, Victor has been picked up for a second season. And for more from what to expect from season two of The Love, Simon redo, check out episode 74 from June for an interview with the Love, Victor showrunners.
1: In getting back to business news, Fargo's previously delayed fourth season will resume production and premiere in late September. Knock on wood over at NBC. Production was completed in a domed stadium in St. Louis on the new season of American Ninja Warrior, which will launch its abbreviated season in September. And in late night news, Stephen Colbert and James Corden will return to their respective studios for upcoming episodes, joining Jimmy Fallon and Conan O'Brien in the transition from filming at home.
0: Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five.
1: Number one.
0: Leading off this week, WarnerMedia is the latest media behemoth to restructure its executive ranks. The company under CEO Jason Kalar pushed out WarnerMedia Entertainment and Direct to Consumer Chairman Bob Greenblatt and Content Chief and TBS, TNT, and True TV President Kevin Riley. The conglomerate also consolidated its multiple TV studios. An estimated 600 staffers are expected to be impacted. As part of the changes, HBO programming president Casey Bloys is now adding oversight of streamer HBO Max, as well as all three cable networks. The news came the same day that the highly anticipated Friends reunion was delayed yet again. Joining us this week to break down the industry's latest contraction is Hollywood Reporter Editor-at-Large Kim Masters. Thanks for joining us, Kim.
2: My pleasure.
1: Okay, Kim, so let's begin kind of big picture here. Uh, Talk about how big this feels as a turning point in the industry or an inflection point, if we want to use the current terminology we like to use.
2: It feels very, very big, as Kevin Riley said, and the piece that Leslie and I did um, a few days ago, it's the great reckoning. You know, this is this trend had started quite a long time ago. I mean, Netflix has been taught us all how to stream a while ago, and we see that the industry has been leaning towards streaming Warner Media started HBO Max, uh, you know Disney Plus, Peacock, all these streaming services coming online. So the, the, the move was there. but this uh, accelerated by the pandemic, combined with Disney writing off billions of dollars, combined with a reorganization at NBC Un- Universal, it just feels like as, as Kevin Riley again said, n- in no corner of the industry is really safe and can just put up their feet and say, we've got this. everybody is under siege. So why is this happening now? You
0: mentioned, obviously, this is a big part of restructuring for a digital future, for the streaming future, and prompted by the pandemic. And you're seeing all these companies, as you said, Disney lost $5 billion the last quarter. But why now? And why wouldn't HBO Max do
2: this closer to its launch? Well, first of all, as you as you know, the HBO Max launch was not all that. It was seen as a fail. You know, this this is a very interesting moment to me. They, they, yes, they all were leaning towards streaming. They've, they've gotten bludgeoned by the pandemic. You know, it's, it's a stunning thing to see Disney... More or less shut down. You know, they're sort of got the theme park open in Florida, but they're they're shortening the hours. The whole thing is, uh, the the production is obviously hobbled. This is an unexpected turn, and it accelerated this move. And and also, you know, so some of these layoffs and reorganizations are ideas that were in the heads of these companies anyway. And then suddenly sort of the complexion of it became different because their revenues fell off a cliff. So, you know, for H and the other thing I think that these companies are learning, we have seen Netflix throw crazy amounts of money at programming. And this and the spew of stuff comes through Netflix. And then you saw Disney Plus launch and they had The Mandalorian, but then there was a long pause with for any kind of material that was for a, an older or, or more mature, you know, the audience that is even, you know, teenage, young adult, that advertising demographic that, you know, appealing to advertiser their demographic uh, that they just had nothing for for months until they had Hamilton. But that's not how it's going to work in the streaming era. And they're now in this very difficult position of going into streaming all in. Uh, uh, there's no actual proof of concept that this will work for them. They're trying to hold on to the old ways of making money, the old theatrical releases, the licensing deals. but broadcast television. All those things are still throwing (laughs) off billions of dollars, so you're supposed to sort of nurse that along at the same time that you're innovating and just blasting out programming. The cost of that is crazy. You know, I have a source, an HBO Max source who says that AT&T doesn't really have the stomach to spend that kind of money, which I understand completely, but it's a trap now that they've gone into. As one of the people we quoted in our story said, you know, do we follow this, everybody over the hill or wait and hear the splat? And the question is, can they adapt or will they die? I mean, this is uh, something we never thought we'd see just overnight in terms of the impact of the pandemic, but the, the trend was there anyway.
0: Yeah, it feels like this is the moment that when the pandemic first started that everyone really feared would happen. You know, I think Disney losing $5 billion in, in, in one quarter really kind of sets the stage for that. And then now you're at this, this larger turning point where you're seeing established Hollywood veterans, Greenblatt, Kevin Reilly, both have run broadcast networks, Greenblatt ran, ran a premium network, et cetera. Kevin's been around forever where you're, you're seeing these traditional Hollywood creatives pushed out in favor of one exec who's get who is now an overcharged, who is now being tasked to lead content for a streamer three basic cable networks which he has zero experience with um in in all the the turner portfolio You're talking plus about the streaming Lloyd's, service yeah, yeah casey but right and you know look he's a good good exec has greenlit some important stuff at hbo but that's a considerably bigger job and so i think the question here for me is what happens to these traditional Hollywood execs? Where do they go? Because, as you know, Dan and I were talking the other day. Not everyone can go to Netflix or Amazon or Hulu.
2: They go to their very expensive homes and they nurse their wounds. I think mostly. I think because the other pressure, of course, now is to finally put up and instead of instead of sitting there and and running your mouth to in terms of hiring women and people who are either black or somehow not white. So. I, they are getting a double whammy, and I know some of them feel that, and and I understand feeling that. Uh, but you know, it's a there's a shift underway, and Hollywood. Even with the hiring and promotion of of, uh, more diverse executives, the power is still in the hands of a very small number of almost, well, white men. That's just how it is. It ain't changing that much. But at least if you get a more diverse group at the level of developing and buying programming that might improve their industry's track record in terms of representation.
1: Well, that's the thing that fascinates me is that we're in this moment where obviously the streaming shift is precipitating a lot of this change. And then you have, as you just say, the shift towards long, long overdue pushes towards ex- uh, inclusivity at the upper executive ranks. And then you also have the overall kind of climate sea change that's happening, not global warming, but awful things happening, being done by awful people. So you have NBC moving forward with its investigation into Paul Tolegdi and doing another one on workplace culture. How much of the NBCU reorg was prompted by his alleged behavior? And how are people supposed to know when they see these uh, (laughs) these massive reorganizations happening, which are happening for corporate reasons and which are happening because of bad people?
2: (laughs) Well, they're not going to know what happens because for legit corporate reasons, what happens because the money isn't coming in the door, what happens because bad people did bad things, but uh, they are going to know whether they're employed or not. And I think it's the unfortunate side is that it will certainly promote an atmosphere of fear when it's so difficult right now, and I, I worry as, as a person who's done a lot of Times Up reporting that people are going to be scared to come forward and, and speak. Well, we'll see how it goes with NBCU. I know they hired outside counsel and they're looking into things. I. They were going to reorganize anyway. I truly, as much as uh, Leslie and I wrote a story that exposed bad behavior by Paul Teleg, the alleged behavior, I think they would have reorganized him out of that job, even without us. Uh, maybe he would have had a softer landing. <laughs> but there are other people, for example, his deputy, Meredith R., who ran the unscripted um, alternative division, and runs it now. Who you know was mentioned and discussed in our article. I'm sure I know a lot of people at NBC are wondering: Is this person really our boss? Is this person going to be here? I, I have to say, I find it peculiar that we wrote that story and they they just left both of them sitting there. Now they knew they were going to move Paul to leg out within a matter of days, but the message is, is certainly not so clear when you have people sitting in meetings with this guy and he's telling them that he's not leaving and uh, you know that's why not do what Amazon did when we wrote about Roy Price and just suspend them and and the similar thing is going on with Meredith R I am told by sources that she is telling people you know the most high level people at this company have my back and I'm going to be here and and you know, there's an investigation going on. So that seems like uh, what is the good. Yeah. So what is there a good faith thing going on here? We will keep our eyes on it.
0: Right. At, and at the same time, with you know, to, you know, with Telegny's ouster, NBC for the first time will not have its own dedicated executive, which to me speaks to this moment in time where, where like KCE's job is expanding to a streamer. NBC Universal is trying to find one executive to oversee programming for Peacock, the broadcast networks, and its entire cable portfolio. When was the last time that NBC didn't have one executive overseeing all things at the network?
2: Well, I think there'll be somebody overseeing their programming, and uh, yeah, they've got these. They're crea- They've got Francis Berwick running business affairs. Person to be named running content. That is also. Maybe it suggests that their uh, reorganization announcement was accelerated because of this Telegdi story, because it's odd. To now having this huge job open, and no, we, you know, if, if you're Francis Berwick as head of business affairs, you're working very closely with this person who you don't know right now, and will need to meet on Zoom probably. So it could be that that uh, that this will this was accelerated, but uh, you know, someone has to be in charge of NBC per se. It's not the same job, right? And from everything that my
0: sources are saying, they're really having a hard time finding someone for that job. Well, unhappy environment
2: maybe doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just sort of as a as a last question, we always like to ask when we go deep in the weeds on things like this, (laughs) the listener, the listeners who are maybe just fans of TV, who maybe just enjoy watching this stuff as these shifts are happening, how are they going to be impacted? How are normal listeners slash TV viewers going to be impacted by any of this?
2: Ask me a hard question, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I have no freaking idea. I mean, we are at a place where people are trying to figure out how to go into production in this baby step way. And, you know, does this work? Is this, are we going to have an outbreak? You know, we are seeing such a slowdown. You know, there was a piece in the Washington Post a couple days ago, I think, saying that, you know, we're there'll be no crowd scenes. There won't be much romance and blah, blah. blah. I just feel like, sure, people are going to write to what is feasible as long as we are in this nightmare. But, uh, you're also seeing, uh, you know, a spew of programming. I mean, I think this is a particular problem for Disney because Disney likes to sort of pick and choose and they have a notion about, they are the only one with a true brand that consumers grasp and Maintaining some version of quality, I think, for everybody is now a problem. There was somebody wrote a thing uh, that was uh, published. I I wish I could be more specific about how t- Netflix is training us all to accept mediocrity. And I've heard this as a theme now from executives at more legacy public uh, companies. Like, you, you know, did you see old guard? One of them said to me, you know, it, it was really, it was so mediocre. It could have been so much better. I mean, I kind of like wasn't looking through at old guard through that. I was just kind of like, well, this is entertaining. I'm fine. And it was well-reviewed, but, th- but th- it's almost like, um, somehow the industry, the legacy industry is saying, well, this stuff is mediocre, it's degrading our standards. Maybe it is, you know, maybe the, you, you, I mean, th- this person who wrote this column made the point that when you look at comments on the top-ranked shows that are supposed to be Netflix's top, top-ranked shows, we never know anything about their real data, th- these comments are sort of like, meh, it was okay, it was fine, <laughs> so <laughs> maybe because it streams in and like it's old faithful geyser of pro- programming coming into my living room. I'm just kind of like passively watching and my standards are declining. I don't know, Dan, you could write a column about that. I think
1: I think there's definitely uh, there's a certain amount of Netflix colon. What else are you going to do with your Saturday night that has definitely set in on some things? Uh, And, you know, look, how if you're doing 500 shows a year or, so, or however many Netflix is doing, they're not all going to be winners. That is right. just the sad reality. But, but that's also <laughs> their
0: strategy, right? They're they're yeah they have the stuff for every single right, but they have every single genre under under one roof. Stand up comedy, they have a bucket for that. Kids kids programming bucket, you know, anime, live action, premium scripted, like they have everything. Whereas you know, I think what you're starting to see with these reorganizations is. One executive is going to have to set a, a scripted and a programming direction for, in Casey Bloy's part, HBO, HBO Max, TNT, TBS... True TV that's five different outlets. Well, I can tell you right now that crazy. TNT
2: and TBS for example are are declining businesses and I don't think Casey's going to lie at night lie awake at night no, waiting definitely. to have a huge hit. He's going to let let it run if they come up with a thing that ter- pops out, he'll consider that a gift. And if it if it just runs until it finally declines to the point of not being worth doing, so be it. That's where we're headed. So I think he's going to be focusing on HBO Max, which is where the real t- and real trouble is. I think he feels that he's left a team in charge at HBO that can manage and and he'll look at it. But, you know, his focus has got to be making this more populist thing. I have a theory, too, that they're going to start increasingly calling HBO Max just Max, because as you and I and all, everybody who covers this business knows, the, the, the inclusion of HBO was something that Casey Bloys was not happy with. And it was diluting that brand, which is a special brand. And people didn't jump from HBO to HBO Max as they wanted to, maybe because it's not a Roku, maybe because of other reasons. But It isn't worth it, I think, ultimately. And the name change, changing the whole name is awkward. But if you call it Max, maybe you could just call it Max and it's no weirder than calling something Peacock or Netflix and it's fine.
1: But it'll still make me wonder why the Cinemax programming, for whatever reason, isn't there. So it, it everything they can do raises more questions.
2: Yes, although I didn't even know that Cinemax still existed. So it doesn't. So, they they don't. They barely do anything anymore. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Maybe who knows that everybody's overwhelmed and they were overwhelmed trying to switch to streaming anyway, and now they have to do more with less less staff and and it's it's a perfect storm to use the cliche that it. It seems to be. And uh, I don't envy anybody struggling in this environment, but everybody who has a job has to be glad they have it. Yeah. On that
0: note, Kim, thank you so much for joining
2: us this week. I am always happy to talk to you too. Number
1: two. Up second. The future of Comedy Central is coming into a little bit more focus. This week, the cable network dropped two critically acclaimed but low-rated live-action scripted originals, The Other Two and Southside. Instead, though, the second seasons of both shows will air on HBO Max as an original and will be executive produced by Comedy Central Productions. So, Leslie, talk a little bit about the unlikely or unusual deal that was made with Comedy Central and HBO Max.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a surprise on a couple of of levels. You know, the first, look, these were not, as you mentioned, ratings Barton Burners. They were, however, critically acclaimed. So what you're seeing here is the first signs of Comedy Central's actual strategy going forward under Chris McCarthy. We know that they have three buckets of programming, adult animation, where they recently hired Grant Gish to oversee that division, tropical, uh, topical series, meaning late night, talk shows. They have the Anthony Jeselnik show, a couple other things. And then they're going to have original movies. So what we don't see in that grouping is live action scripted originals. So we know that Nora from Queens, the Aquafina show, uh, will remain on Comedy Central for its its previously announced second season. The library of that show was also included with the full volumes of the other two and Southside for HBO Max. It will still air first on Comedy Central, unlike the other two and... Southside. I meant to say the other two shows, but well, one of them's called the other two. Anyway, so the interesting piece is that, you know, there's not, I don't know that they're completely out of live action scripted originals because if, for, from my understanding, is if those original movies actually hit, you could see potential TV spinoffs of them. So that's a strategy that we're keeping an eye on. You know, the other pieces of this that makes it so fascinating is why these shows were sold outside of the company. So Comedy Central is owned by Viacom CBS. Viacom CBS is currently reevaluating everything on its streaming platform, CBS All Access. We know it's going to have a new name come 2021 at some point. And, you know, we've as we said on the show before, you know, they've Viacom CBS has sold a lot of library programming elsewhere. So they've made deals with Peacock for a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies that will stream on both CBS All Access and Peacock, for example. But here you're seeing a Viacom CBS unit take two programs and sell them to WarnerMedia and basically say, we're okay with this. We don't want them for our own streaming service. But at the same time, this is part of our larger strategy for Comedy Central Productions. So they are trying to turn their, their internal studio into a content supplier for third-party buyers. So that's a way for them to monetize these shows that maybe they didn't want for their own platform. But at the same time, why wouldn't they take them for their own platform? It makes no sense. Like you're keeping, this is where the the industry is shifting, where when you have a show that hits and if it doesn't work on linear, you move it to your streamer. HBO Max just did that with Search Party, right? You know, critically acclaimed for a couple seasons on TBS. We know for a fact that no one watched it there, but on HBO Max, it's got a bigger audience. So the same is going to happen here with Southside and the other two, but it's not going to happen on CBS All Access. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense here.
1: Yeah, we definitely could have called this segment a What the Bleep is Happening with uh, Comedy Central or. Except we do know
0: what's happening. Uh,
1: But it's still funny because you've got you had these two shows that were transplanted this week. Uh, There was Alternatino with Arturo Castro that was moved to Quibi a few months ago.
0: Dan, Quibi.
1: Oh my god, the worm has turned, the shoe is on the other foot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is for the rest of this podcast it's going to become a hilarious body swap comedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was so busy trying to make sure that I uh, that I called our Alternatino correctly its, but its title that I completely forgot to call Quibi by its actual name. I apologize to all of our listeners for letting us down. Um, I am nearly as bad as Tucker Carlson repeatedly calling Kamala Harris Kamala. Um, I feel I feel very chagrined by the whole thing. And I apologize for bringing Tucker Carlson's name into this there podcast. You go. This was supposed to be a Tucker free zone. I, I apologize. Yeah, so it's. <laughs> Anyway, it's very strange <laughs> where all of the different pieces are going and and the Viacom CBS all access of it all is is very weird. I, I don't understand why these shows are going to HBO Max, but what do I know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you know, Comedy Central is not alone. I mean, in trying to sell library titles elsewhere, you know, we they've done that. They had I think it was The Real World that they sold to Facebook Watch when Facebook Watch was still doing content like that. They've obviously have sold a couple things to, to Quibi and, you know, it, it, they're smart because they realize that some of the stuff that they have isn't actually going to work for their network, for the linear network. But why not take a stab at, at CBS All Access? I mean, that, that's the piece that, that is truly puzzling to me, you know, and there's other networks too that are trying to, to use their internal studios to monetize content, you know, where AMC, they just signed a couple of big producers to overall deals and they're trying to take those shows and sell them and be a content supplier because they realize as a linear cable network they're not it, it's impossible to cut through anymore. So yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating on a number of levels. The, the most important to me to watch is what happens with Viacom CBS and CBS All Access and whatever that that becomes. You know, look as Kim said, you know, she predicts that HBO Max will just start going by Max. It wouldn't surprise me to see All Access drop the CBS from its name too.
1: Stay tuned, as we like to say. Number three.
0: Up next, the controversial Please, Baby, Please episode of ABC's Blackish has finally seen the light of day. Only it's not on ABC. Hulu This Week debuted the episode, which had been shelved since 2018. The story offered a mix of political allegory and actuality, including news footage of Donald Trump, the Charlottesville attacks, and the NFL kneeling protests. The move turned out to be the last straw in Barris' longstanding relationship with the Walt Disney Company— Not long after, as we've noted on our show, he moved his overall deal from ABC Studios to Netflix. Dan, you watched the episode, and obviously this has been a story that we've followed for a number of years here at THR. What did you think of the episode? What does it say about ABC's decision to pull it, and why is Hulu dropping it now?
1: I mean, the whole thing is bizarre, and I keep thinking on it because— the entire narrative about this episode and the almost mythical quality of its controversy and notoriety is baffling to me. And the number of different stories that we got at the time when it was pulled and the number of different explanations and excuses. Ultimately, the last explanation that Channing Dungey gave before she departed ABC as well was that it was a creative issue that the episode didn't come together as well as they wanted to. And having actually watched the episode, I'm a little bit inclined to agree with that. I, I don't think it's the best episode that Blackish has ever done. In fact, I would say it's a pretty middling and fairly safe episode of Blackish, which makes the entire thing all the more baffling because by no stretch of the imagination would anybody have stirred up any fuss about this episode if it had just aired on ABC. It is an okay, sweet, generally non-controversial episode of TV that for some reason the ABC brass felt was too controversial. And whether that's because they were in the middle of you know, the big turnaround with the Fox deal and all of that. And if everybody was terrified of rocking the boat in any way, whether it was because of connections with ABC, Disney, ESPN, the NFL, and whether that was a controversy. But the thing about kneeling in the episode, and that was how everyone described this episode for months, was, oh, it's the episode that deals with Colin Kaepernick and the national anthem protests. It's not. That's like the fourth storyline within the episode. Uh Andre Jr. comes into the room where Dre is trying to put his young infant son to sleep, and tells him briefly about a really stupid story about how his student council has to decide whether they're going to punish other students for kneeling it for the national anthem, and they have a talk about it for three minutes. It's it's nothing. I, so. That is where this all comes down in terms of confusion. So, if it's a creative decision, let me assure you, ABC has aired worse sitcom episodes than this one. And I mean dozens upon dozens of worse sitcom episodes. And Blackish has done dozens of episodes that are more controversial and more biting than this one. So, I, I don't get it. And it basically makes that ABC administration look. Cowardly for reasons that are hard to explain because I don't know what they were afraid of. There's a story here, obviously, but this is not worth the conversations and the alienation of Kenya Barris that was associated with it. There is no justifying this episode being the cause of the ending of that relationship. I don't get
0: it. Yeah, that's going to wind up hurting them in the long run far more than pulling this episode. So. Um, why do you think Hulu uh, decided to drop it now? I mean, obviously Kenya has been pushing for this to, to see the light of day for some time.
1: I think the the feeling is, and Kenya is correct about this, that it is an episode that is topical in the way that many episodes of Blackish are topical, and I think even more than that it's still timely two years later. So it is not like anyone is going to watch this episode and think, man, we've moved past all of those subjects that are being discussed. And man, people are now able to sleep because there are no problems in the world and no one is feeling social unrest in the world. No, it's not. this, This episode could have aired this past season. And other than people being confused that, Devontae was back to being a baby as opposed to a toddler. Nobody would have thought it was untimely. So for Hulu, it's just another thing to add in the library and probably a thing that attracted at least a tiny bit of, you know, check out this controversial episode. Now I'll watch more of blackish kind of thing. Uh, So there's no there certainly was no harm. But I think also probably someone at Hulu Took a second look at this episode and said, "Man, I don't understand why this was a thing." Sure, let's put it there. Where's the harm in getting a little bump in web traffic for blackish? Uh, yeah, I, it is all weird, and it all makes so many people look bad, and it's hard to know who the people are who look worse. So Channing Dungey was supposed to be this huge champion of the artists, and she was the one who ended up being in the position to have to make excuses for it. Is is it her fault? Is it someone else's fault? I, I have no answer, but nobody is going to watch this episode and think, man, that was too hot for TV. No, it's not at all.
0: Yeah, it definitely doesn't make any sense. Well, I don't know. what is there anything left here to say, Dan? I don't think so. All right, well, let's move on. Up next, it's time for our Showrunner Spotlight segment.
1: Number four. Our guest this week wrote for Heroes and Sons of Anarchy before creating WGN America's acclaimed Underground. Misha Green's new series is HBO's 1950 set racial allegory Lovecraft Country, based on the novel by Matt Ruff. Welcome to the show, Misha.
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. So getting started, can you walk us through how, how
0: Lovecraft came together? I mean, two huge producers in Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams that, you know, it sounds like a dream team right off the bat, but I'm curious how the three of you came together on this one.
3: Well, um, at the time I was working on season two of Underground and um, CAA was like, "There, you should meet this guy Jordan Pill and I was like I don't like to laugh why do I need to meet Jordan Pill? and they're like no no he's really into horror like you're into horror it's really great and you're both black and I was like oh okay there it goes um so we met and vibed right away it was like kismet that kind of thing where we were just talking about the horror movies we love what we love about horror and he was like at the time um he said i'm making a horror movie i want you to come watch it and you know how you're like oh i just vibed with you i don't know it's like the movie's not good and the movie was get out so of course after seeing it i was like my this is amazing and so we we came together on the book and from there we went um to jj's company because we wanted this to be big and epic and that's bad robot in a two words bad robot and so that's how jj read the book talked to us and he was like i'm in so relatively easy
0: (laughs) was it always going to go to hbo or did you try to shop it elsewhere
3: you no, know, we shopped it everywhere. You know, we ultimately chose HBO because we wanted it to be bold. We wanted it to be epic. We wanted to kind of do this genre-spanning show that wasn't just going to touch on horror. And so we're, what a better place to do it than HBO? Because it's not TV, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, a conversation that we've been having with more frequency recently, and that almost certainly we should have been having for decades, is who gets to tell certain stories. And I'm curious, when you're taking a novel about the Black experience written by a white author, what immediately changes when it's you sitting at the laptop?
3: What immediately changes? You know, I think that Matt... Ruff the author did an amazing job I think that we should all be expected as storytellers to do research to have empathy to step into other people's shoes and I think he did an amazing job at that what changes when I come into it is just bringing one a novel to television that's a different thing you know we said that You know, I told our writer's room, it's a beautiful platform and we're going to jump off of it and we're going to go to the moon and back and we're going to time travel. We're going to do all the things. And so I think that's when I step into it, I bring that. I do bring the, you know, my perspective of the world, which is rarely seen in storytelling. I think we see it very much from a white male perspective most of the time, even when there are creative of colors who are doing it because we're so used to seeing the narrative being told that way. And so when I come in, I do bring my corner of the world, which is black and female, which we don't get to see that much storytelling wise, especially in Hollywood, which is our biggest narrative machine. Um, And I also, for me, storytelling, I just like to push. I like to go. I like to, you know, I like to eat story. I like to keep it moving and I like to challenge and innovate. And I feel like picking out all those little corners of who you are, whether you're black, white, Mexican, Asian, Picking out those corners, those details of what make you you is what excites me the most as a writer.
1: Well, the book is interesting because it has this almost anthological structure where every time you think you know what the story is, it kind of shifts genres and shifts story. You kind of brought the narrative elements together a little bit more. As you approached it, what was kind of sacred from the book that you wanted to make sure you kept? And what did you know immediately? OK, I got to I got to ditch this. I got to reframe this.
3: Nothing sacred. <laughs> you know, I think that's how I approach everything. I approach history that way too. I go, we are telling a drama we're telling, um, we want you to feel. So for me, I just go, what are all the things in the book that made me feel what immediately jumped out at me that made me go, Oh my God, that hit in my solar plexus. And I'm, definitely keeping that. And that's the fun of adapting. You have all this beautiful stuff. It's the fun of doing stuff in history. There's stuff from history, like the sundown towns. I'm like, I can't write that into a horror movie. If I literally said there's signs all over the U S that says, don't let the sun set on you here. And people who are African-American can't be there after dark. Everybody would be like, okay, <laughs> like, this is a horror trope. What are you, you know? So I feel like that for me is, adaptation is that nothing's sacred, but you make sure you take everything that made you feel something. And Matt's book had a plethora of those things. Some of the things we did have to leave out because we couldn't do every single thing in there.
1: Now, you mentioned you took this around everywhere, and the series, like the book, is simultaneously this very smart set of racial allegories, but also an entirely graphic piece of Pulp Fiction in and of itself. As you were talking to people about it, which side was easier for people to understand and what side kind of confused people about what this was?
3: I think all of it confused people, <laughs> to be honest. I think because it was a, com- it was that thing of how— you know, what we were pitching, how was that going to come together? How were you going to meld both sides? It's the same, you know, issue we came into when we were pitching Underground. They were like, slavery every week? I'm like, but it's a heist movie. Like, it's a heist movie every week. That's what we're going... um, And you're going to care about the characters. That's also... TV is about characters. So you're going to... So I feel like that was... Everybody was like, this package is beautiful, but and we can read the book and the book is cool, but what is it going to translate to? Because you're talking about this big epic scopey at the end of the day, family drama, but really going on a journey. And so I think that that was a lot of like faith that was like, we're going to put faith in the people behind it and see how it goes.
0: You know, the show, my, I've been watching this at night and that is probably my own mistake. So there's been a lot of like scares and gore and it, it's, it comes out of, you know, like I'm invested in this, in this family drama and then boom, it, it you know, you kind of hit us, over, you know, with, with the scares and the gore side of, of this. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that kind of you faced as you explored both of those and, and tried to keep those big beats in while also crafting a family drama?
3: I, you know, the challenges of it is you have all of this to do when you have an hour to do it. But the joy is, you know, there's no commercials. So you've got a longer time. I think um, what was interesting was HBO was like, no, but you really need to keep it to an hour. I was like, but we could have like an hour and 30 minutes. We could do like two hours. Like we could, and they were like, hmm, no, we really, and I'm like, guys, it's HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO. We can make up what, and they were like, no, we really can't. Um,
0: Critics everywhere are thanking HBO for that right now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The challenge was being like, okay, let's distill it to what is important and what it is, because there was not important. What was most important for this story we were telling, for instance, like in the ghost story, that one you know, is a story about pioneering into an all-white neighborhood. You could write a movie just on that. And then we're also having to tell ghost story beats. You could write a movie just on that. And then you can write a movie just on this, this woman trying to figure out how to find the fire inside of herself after this crazy horrific thing that happened to her, you know? And so all of that was a blend, but it was making sure you felt all of it and none of it was getting lost. And it was a challenge, but it was an exciting challenge, I think.
1: Well, but you're definitely steering into the genre elements here. A lot of the, the scares, a lot of the gore. And I'm curious, with especially with the fifth episode, but really throughout, how far you were determined to go and what the conversations were like about the makeup requirements, the special effects requirements, and getting HBO on board requirements.
3: Well, HBO never has to get on board. They're always like, HBO, let's make sure it's HBO. And I'm like, what does that mean? Oh, got it. So that, and then I never have to get on board either because I'm a huge horror fan. I like gore. I like all of it, slasher and all of that stuff. So for me, especially in episode five, I was like, "Mm we don't want to shy away from what this really is. Like we want to feel that I was like, what I loved the idea of it was only seeing pieces of it and then seeing the big thing happening all at once. But even in our pieces, it's like with the, with the, I mean, we can just say it's the Ruby episode where she takes a potion to turn into a white woman. And making sure we felt that transformation and that it was never easy to make that transformation was really, really important to me and exciting to me because I love horror and gore so much.
0: You know, you, uh, Hollywood Reporter just did an, an amazing cover story with Journey Smollett in which you said that you originally had reservations about casting her here because you weren't sure if you wanted to kind of stamp yourself as someone who only works with actors they've worked with before. Can you talk a little bit about the, the genesis
3: of that concern and, and how you talked yourself out of it? You know, I just, it's it's my drive to push myself to go to uncomfortable places, to go to new places. So there's a comfortability that Journey and I had found on Underground that I was like, well, am I just going back to that well, because it's the easiest place to go. And then I came to the realization, I was like, Misha, you're hampering yourself in another way there. Like, it's not going back to the well because this is the easiest way to go. It's going back to the well because it's a beautiful artistic relationship. And she's absolutely right for this role. You know, so I feel like that was me having to get over my own ego a little bit of being like, you know, you've got to push yourself. You got to keep moving. You got to do the things like you got to be innovative. And I was just like, okay, okay. Settle down, Misha, settle
2: down.
0: You know, as we're watching this, you know, and you've mentioned too, that each episode almost feels like You know, and and it almost feels like an anthology in some uh, in some cases. But when you think about the show's future, is this something that will live on for a second season in its current form? Or is it, you know, could you see a whole new a whole new cast of characters in season two? Or is it just like Watchmen this season and then that's it?
3: Well, I think that it could leave on for a lot of seasons. I think the thing that really kind of drew me to Matt's novel in the first place was this idea of reclaiming genre space for people of color. And for me, that doesn't just mean black people. I think that that means all people of color. And I think that's exciting to me. Um, I could see seasons going on with Atticus and these characters and Letty and this family and then branching that out into something else, bringing other things into it. I don't I don't definitely don't see it as a one season thing. I think that there's so much more, even though we pack so much into this season. There's so many places to go that are interesting in the idea of reclaiming genre space for people of color.
1: Were there any conversations about expanding any of the kind of smaller stories within the book and just making, say, for example, the trip to New England into season one? Or did you always know you wanted to do it roughly segmented like that?
3: Yeah, I, there was no conversations because I didn't allow for conversations like that. I just like story to move, you know? I feel like anytime you're expanding something out that doesn't necessarily need to be expanded out, I'm going, why? Why am I seeing, why am I coming to a genre show and watching, you know, 45 minutes of two people in a room talking and then having 15 minutes of stuff happening. Like we want to see the stuff happen. And so I always pitched the entire season as kind of the arc of the book and going all there and more and doing all of that stuff. And I also think it's like for me, I think that a lot of people get worried about seven seasons, but I don't get worried about seven seasons because I'm like, one, I can hire a room of ten people to come up with ideas, guys. Like we don't have to be a parade of moving forward. And I feel like for me, I'm I'm always excited. Like the the formative shows that kind of stick in my brain. One of them is Battlestar Galactica, and how every season they twisted that in a new direction. And you were like, wait, what? Like this wasn't like last season, but it's still a great season. And it's that to me is exciting. The idea of twisting things in new directions, but being like, of course, it was always going in this direction. Well,
0: I, I was going to ask about the writer's room, you know, w- you know, as someone who loves the horror space so much, but this show is it, it checks so many different boxes. Can you talk a little bit about the composition of, of that writer's room? Like how much was it filled with with horror people, with with family drama folks? I mean, can you talk a little bit about what what uh, that room looked like?
3: I feel like being such a huge horror fan that I, I walked into that room and I was like, here's our horror syllabus. Let's go. You know, I don't think we had to find people specifically were only horror people because we had our syllabus for each episode. So it was like, read these books, watch these movies. This is our ghost story. This is what we're doing. This is our, you know, secret society story. This is the movies we're watching. Now. So I think it was about finding One, you know, I said to all the writers, I was like, this is going to be therapy. We're going to be unpacking family shit in this room. It's going to all have to be on the table. It's going to make you really, really uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable. I was like, that's where we have to go. And then on top of that, you have to be open to the genre space, because I feel like a lot of people go, oh, genre, that's, you know, lowbrow. And I'm just like, boo, no. So you have to learn to love it the way I love it. And I think you don't have to start in that place. So that's when we were looking for writers, I was looking for a diverse group of people to bring their familial experience to the table, knowing that the genre side of it can be learned. Right. From, from your syllabus. Yeah. Right. I'm dying to know
0: what, what that syllabus looks like. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm, I'm and now we're curious. So give yeah. us some of the stuff that was on the syllabus, how much of it is kind of deep cuts? How much of it is shallow cuts? How how much did you want your writers to dig into this stuff?
3: Well, I didn't want to scare them. So I didn't, you know, because you give people too much homework and they're like, what is this? Like, gosh, we have to do stuff outside of work as well. But I think it was important to, you know, go through the iconic things, the original Night of the Living Dead, um, all the way up to the iconic things that aren't iconic because of time, like Martyrs, like that is a movie that is like, for me watching that, the first two acts of that movie, you're going, 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 and then you're like, what is happening? And so that's like the feel the show wanted to have is what is happening, that kind of thing. So it was going from that to like The Shining, obviously, Eyes Wide Shut, like, and also a lot of the stuff we were, I was calling out in the script already, the original Jackie Robinson story, just to get into that 1950s feel as
1: well. (laughs) Well, okay. But Lovecraft himself is obviously a minefield, what with him being a horrible, rather repugnant racist and all. Um, How much exactly did you actually want anyone to be reading the original sort of Lovecraft source material? And how much was it? okay? he's important. We know why he's important, but we also know why we're not really dealing with him.
3: I think for me, it's, it's a little, you know, I, as being a big horror fan, I was aware of HP. I read a lot of his stuff already. I also had that same feeling where I was like, wow, you're, I mean, it's here. You can It's not text pretty much what you feel. So for me, it was optional, honestly, because I was like, but that's what I feel about all of the canon of stuff that comes from people who artists who aren't exactly, you know, I'm not that person that's going to say, um, Oh God, destroy all of it because the person was terrible. But I'm also like, you have to ask yourself why you don't want to contend with the fact that the person who created this was terrible. And it's not just that the person was terrible, but it's in the text. Like you can read it in the text. It's not like you're coming and going on the creation of niggers. It's not about what I think it's about. It's, pr- it's what it's about guys. So that's my thing. I feel like um, people want to separate artists from the art. And I don't. I don't want to do that but I don't want to discard their art either. I think that that's another thing that was really great about Matt's book was this reclamation of it. And it felt like you can go into HP, you could have Lovecraft Country and understand the past, but know that we're going into the future. And so that to me was how I approached where I was like, guys, also, there's a lot to read. So I'm like, you don't have to read all of it. You could read some of it. Maybe the stuff we (laughs) reference.
1: now as you did on underground lovecraft country has a soundtrack that blends period specific music anachronistic modern music and then this time around you also add a lot of spoken word elements there's the james baldwin stuff in the first episode there's the lead up to whitey on the moon which you could have just trimmed away but instead you're like i'm gonna leave these talking parts what is the principle that you have when it comes to approaching music in a series like this
3: Um, you know, I just it's, you know, with with this one, we had done um, contemporary music on underground and I it really for me helped pull kind of this portrait on the wall off the wall. And you got to live in it. I think we're so used to seeing period pieces where it's like, oh, it's in sepia tones and it's got the period specific music only. And so to me, it was a way to bridge time on that. And I wanted to do that again because this show. In all the things that it does, it, you know it's, it's not 1950s, it's today, it's the future, it's the past, it's before the 1950s. So how was a new way to do that, adding on to the contemporary music? And so then I had been watching um, like Lemonade and I Am Not Your Negro and both of those have spoken word elements in it. And so that just, I went, well, you could bring this to TV. You could bring this to TV and you can find all these pieces out of time. You could do a Nike commercial. You could take the audio from a Nike commercial and put it a soundtrack over a scene. And it's going to evoke something differently. It's going to make you move in and out of something. And so that was what was exciting to me about it. And you don't know if things like that are going to work. You're just like writing it in the script and everybody's like, so we're just using it, whole, I'm like wholesale, just pull it, whatever it is. They're like, so we're not changing. Like even in the opening of three, the Nike commercial, like there's like these claps, these deep claps that start in it. And they're like, we're not gonna change that. Like what if they don't match up with, I'm like, nope, we're not changing anything. And then you watch it and it melts into it seamlessly. And it's like, that's the beauty of it where it was like, there was nothing we picked that didn't feel right in the end. But that could just be me making that up in my head because I love the idea so much. But we'll see. We'll see how everyone vibes with it.
1: Now, with Underground, which is a show that I really loved and tell people to watch still to this day, um, and it's out there on Hulu, so people could discover it. it, It's tough because this was the show that was, it was critically acclaimed. It was full of star-making performances, but you were making it for a network that never really was sure if it wanted to be doing scripted television. And that was a sort of weird thing to watch from the outside. What was it like to feel that from the inside? When did you feel like you were being encouraged? And when did you realize this was just not a thing they were doing?
0: (laughs) And then, of course, they tried to shop it and obviously couldn't find a home, which like I'm curious what that process was like, too, as part of this whole thing.
3: Well, you know, that process wasn't a surprise, seeing as The reason we ended up at WGN, because they were the people who said yes. Everyone else said no. You know, I think that that was the great thing about WGN. They didn't know what they wanted to be. And that allowed us to slip in and make this TV show that no one else would make. And so that process was always difficult. But the other side is you don't have underground. You know what I mean? Because no one else picked it up. And then Underground came, it established this network. It was a critical hit. You know, nobody knew where to find WGN before Underground came around. And then it's just disappointing to see, okay, we've now proofed the pudding, you know, and still everyone is too afraid to move forward and do a show set in this time talking about the stuff that we were talking about. And then for it to become, you know, it's too expensive, that's farcical. I'm like, this thing is not, (laughs) for the action drama TV, this is pennies, guys. So that was farcical to me, that narrative that became the story about Underground as well, but Again, not surprising because everybody we, we pitched that all around town, too. And everybody was like, mm, we, we
0: don't know about this. So who passed then and and what do you think their reaction would be today if you were to, to bring that show to them?
3: You know, I can't. I don't I don't look in the rear view. You know what I mean? I feel like I go, OK, you know, and then we do Lovecraft. You know, and then we see what happens next. It's all about moving forward and pushing. And, you know, for me, Lovecraft Country is a sister to Underground. And so for me, I'm going, I'm still telling stories. I'm still telling this story. I'm still telling what it means to fight for your freedom in basically everything I'm doing and what it means to be seen as whole and human. And I go, what a joy to be able to be here now. You know, even though Underground didn't finish the way I would have liked it to.
0: Yeah, but but do you think if you were to shop, you know, if Lovecraft didn't exist today and you were to, to take Underground out as a pitch, how do you think it would be received if it were shopped today?
3: Well, I think there's a couple Underground Railroad projects that are being made right now. So I think that tells you how it would be shopped today. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I feel like, you know, but again, nothing but joy in that for me. I go, There's so many stories to tell in the Underground Railroad. There's so many angles to take. It's just like Harriet Tubman. There's so many angles to take that I go make all of them. Why not?
1: Well, were there conversations with WGN about the version of the show that could have had a season three? Was there a smaller, talkier, less action driven version?
3: (laughs) No, there was no version. They were not picking that show up for a season three because they were pivoting out of making originals. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they had no exec. And, you know, this was a show underground was produced by Sony
3: play. They were pivoting out of originals. (laughs) But no, so there was no version of a talk that was less or because, again, it was less. We were making that show for pennies. I don't think you could legit make a TV show for less money unless it's two people sitting in a room.
1: Well, you did have one episode that was literally Aisha Hines standing on a stage giving a speech for an hour. So couldn't have been.
3: We shot in three days because we had used up all our other time. And so we shot it in three days. I had we wrote it. Two weeks before we shot it, Aisha had to learn all of that in like a week and a half. It was bananas. But, you know, you make it happen.
0: Wow. Look, the show Lovecraft, congratulate the reviews have been stunning across the board. Um, What's next for you? I mean, are you looking at are you already working on season two of Lovecraft? Or Have you given any thought to signing an overall deal and, and doing more development?
3: We're still working on season one i have learned my lesson when you say big and epic and you want vfx you know we have some 200 vfx shots in each episode we're still working on it like that's what's crazy it's literally we have vfx reviews every day and i love it because this stuff is so amazing and so cool but i did not know it took this much time for sure so still working on this one, haven't moved out of it yet to think about what the next one is, but something, you know,
1: on on that timetable, what is the impact of this whole quarantine and all of the strangeness? Has it had any impact or, or would this have been done three months sooner under other circumstances?
3: You know, I think the, the effects take time, no matter what. I do think we slowed down as everyone slowed down by, um, By force and by design. I think when the pandemic started, I was like, guys, we're not going to be doing 72 hour days, you know, on this show. We're in a global pandemic, not to mention an uprising, like a lot is going on. Let's step back and realize that we're people and we need to address our um, health and safety too. And not just finish this massive show for HBO. And then that was like two weeks. And then everybody was like, okay, no, we just have to do the show. Cause it has to get done. Um, but yeah, it did slow down a bit, but I, st- it w- still would have been the extent of making monsters and having different monsters and having these different worlds we're building, um, takes time no matter what.
0: Well, we do like to end all these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying?
3: You know, I just watched um, I May Destroy You is amazing. First of all, Uh, more mortal, but it's a French show that's on Netflix about teens who make a deal with a God who gives them powers. Um, I've been watching that because I love genre. So those two things have been my thing lately.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you.
0: This has been fun. Lovecraft Country premieres August 16th on HBO.
1: Number five.
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Dan, you got some good stuff this week. New new launches include Lovecraft Country on HBO, Ted Lasso on Apple TV Plus, and Teenage Bounty Hunters on Netflix.
1: Yeah, last week I feel like there was really nothing to discuss, and maybe we attributed that to being the slowdown of... Where we are, slow down, that's only going to get worse. But this week, there actually really are a bunch of options, and they range from very exciting to very good to totally worth watching and an amiable way to waste a few hours. And let's be real, we all kind of need that as well. So probably the the big ticket item this weekend is, is Lovecraft Country. You just heard our conversation with Misha Green, um, and I was a huge fan of Underground as well. This is a ballsy, pulpy, nutty, provocative drama. Uh, It takes the pulpiness of Watchmen several steps further, but it's a similar way of using genre for racial allegory and discussing modern issues through both period history, but also through genre. And so sometimes it's a ghost story, sometimes it's a monster story, sometimes it's other various pulp fiction genres but it's consistently very good some people will not warm to the pulpiness of its tone and let's just say you know that when there are monsters there are big monsters and they chew people up and there are severed limbs and there's all sorts of gory body humor here so if you don't like that kind of thing this is probably going to be too much for you and that's okay uh it is led by a terrific performance from uh, Journey Smollett, who many people have liked going back all the way, all the way to Full House in some cases, not me in that case, but
0: me she's in the a, Friday Night Lights case,
1: I, I go much more to the Friday Night Lights and underground of it all. But and parenthood, she is she is a great actress. She is a phenomenal screen presence. And this is just such a good use of her presence. Uh She she is just a straight up badass in this and the entire cast, uh, uh Johnny Majors, um, Courtney B. Vance, the always awesome Michael Kenneth Williams. Great cast, all in top form. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it'll freak you out. So, anyway, that's Lovecraft Country. Uh, Ted Lasso, you can go back and listen to last week's podcast for our conversation with co creator Bill Lawrence. It is a underdog sports comedy through and through, and you heard Bill Lawrence talk about their affection for the genre. It is very, very major league. E, that was, I believe, your reaction when you watched it, right, Leslie?
0: Absolutely, it was. Uh, it was kind of nice, actually. It was a nice surprise.
1: <laughs> and so it's if you like the genre, it is easy to slide in and to see where all the archetypes are and to see how the rhythms are played out and and what it says that they're doing it with soccer and what the outside perspective is and all of that. Um, It is a comedy that I didn't laugh at all that often. And I I have to say that It, it didn't make me laugh and, you know, side splitting none of that. On the other hand, after I got through the couple episodes at the beginning that are very much a ha ha ha, isn't it funny that the British say different words for similar things kind of humor. I found myself really warming to its rhythms and to a lot of the characters. And I just enjoyed watching the 10 episodes of, uh, of Ted Lasso.
0: It was and, it's very optimistic, I I will say. I mean, and I I was not in a place where I was ready to watch something that that was so optimistic, but by the end of the I watched the whole season and by the end of it I was just like, Yeah, I get it. And it was it's actually it was good for my soul because you know hi look out the look at the news
1: yeah and i and i think a lot of people are going to feel the same way you just have to give yourself over to its its big-heartedness and go along uh and then the third of the new scripted shows coming out this weekend is is Netflix's Teenage Bounty Hunters which has Genji Cohen as its biggest name executive producer and there's some of that in it but it was created by Kathleen Jordan uh just to actually give a person its name and the premise is literally exactly what the title is. It's the story of two fraternal twin sisters uh, played by Maddie Phillips and Angelica Betty Fellini, uh, who find themselves lucking in in some strange way to becoming bounty hunters, assisting a grizzled bounty hunter played by Kadeem Hardison, which is a sort of funny role for him. And what I would compare it to and I need to emphasize up front, it is not as good as these two shows I'm about to compare it to, but I would compare it to Veronica Mars. I would compare it to Sweet Vicious. That is the kind of show that it is. And often it is kind of clever. And the performances are extremely likable, especially the two leading ladies. Every once in a while, it tackles something that's a little bit interesting and probing. It, it, you know, for example, it, it takes on the to- the toppling of Confederate monuments because it is set in Atlanta and that is a topic they, to- they take on and they do it decently. And I found myself really enjoying the show in a casual way. It is not quite smart or substantive enough to really jump up to that next level where I'll be banging the drum for it for months. On the other hand, it is... The kind of show where if you settle in and you you laugh at its first couple scenes, you'll find yourself enjoying it. So those, those are the scripted shows, but that's not all there is, Leslie.
0: No, you've also got World's Toughest Race on Amazon and the Netflix documentary High Score. What do you in, think of those?
1: Indeed. See so much TV this week. Uh, World's Toughest Race is the continuation of Eco Challenge, which was Mark Burnett's predecessor to Survivor, and it is an endurance competition race with with human aspects to it. And uh, it's good to see it back. Bear Grylls joins the show as kind of a presenter host. Tie everything together kind of guy. It, It looks really great. The original Eco Challenge, when it aired on like four different networks back in the 90s and the aughts, uh, it didn't have the advantage of, of high def. It didn't have the advantage of drone footage. So it makes a lot of really good use of those things. It's set in Fiji, like all the recent seasons of Survivor. And it looks, it looks fantastic. And, um, I, this, this is just a fun show. And a lot of people really loved this show, but it just wasn't as popular as Survivor, Amazing Race, et cetera. Shows the shows that kind of built on what it did. I, I enjoyed having it back. It's on Amazon Prime now and it's it's entertaining. And if you liked it before, you will probably like it now. And High Score on Netflix is in the vein of a 30 for 30 about video games. It's a six part history of video games documentary. And if you are a 70s, 80s, 90s kid, whether you were a video game devotee or just generally interested in the world of video games, it has a lot of interesting and fun things. It, it's fairly superficial. It's it's not really deep in depth on things and it could be smarter and it misses a lot of stuff. So probably chances are good that they'll leave out five of your favorite games and they just won't discuss them. But maybe that's for season two. Uh, I enjoyed it. That premieres next week on Netflix. Um, I'll have a review by next week at some point. So that's really a lot of TV.
0: That is. And for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We will be back next week.
1: Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us if you really like us, leave a little reviewy thing. It spreads the word of mouth. We're always on Twitter and always happy to hear your questions, comments, and concerns. But maybe next week will be a good week for a mailbag. Who knows? If you've got questions for us, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the number 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, my friend, stay safe, everyone.
3: Institutes.